This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Dawn Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel, and today I have the distinct pleasure of speaking with an award-winning music pioneer who happens to be a savage storyteller, a creative explorer, a musical ninja, and a titan of tangible experiences. Coming up is my dialogue with Beatty Wolf, an innovative artist that defies labels and always searches for new ways to imprint her music on the life of the listener. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free. You're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. La 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 la, la 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 la. Hey, PT. Hey, thanks so much for having me join us. Oh, I'm just so excited. My mind is wide open about so many things, but you're a storyteller foremost. I think among all the things that you do, you're telling stories through your own unique music and voice. And you found your voice fairly young, as I understand, because you're very, very original. So do you know when that moment happened for you where you were not musically derivative of other things? I guess I really just fell in love with storytelling from as early as I can remember. And it wasn't really confined, you know, to one form particularly. It was just any any form of storytelling, of being imaginative. And then around the, the age of six or seven, I realised I could put these stories to music. And, you know, that was such a natural fit for me. It just felt like, you know, the most obvious thing to do. And so I sort of started writing songs around that time. And then maybe a year or so later, I came across my parents' record collection and just saw albums as these musical books that you could open up and read like a story with this tangible component, this ceremony, and sort of really enter into the world of the album. And I became kind of totally absorbed with that format and that whole sort of multi-dimensional experience that music used to have. And I think that just imprinted on me so deeply that when we moved, you know, many years later on from physical to digital, I was kind of hell-bent on trying to recreate the magic of this much more ceremonial and much more absorbing experience that I'd had as a kid, but for the digital age. So that sort of became the central intention behind all of the work that I've done. Well, I think it is interesting that while the digital age has allowed for a quick delivery and democratization of that distribution, it also has become very disposable where you can't get your hands on it. You can't pass it on, right? It's very, it's, I noticed it in my parents' photographs in their Kodachrome slides in a box full of snapshots that I love that tactile experience of holding them and then it usually led to a storytelling aspect 
which is somebody would say, oh, look at that. That's the outfit I had on when I was in my, having my first communion or whatever, that whatever the story was. And all of that has sort of gone away as well because people have these giant photo files in their phone and they don't show them to anybody and they don't tell the stories of them and they can't find them if they have to. So I really related to that tangible aspect that you talk about. And I wonder, do people really understand that loss? It would be almost like making gardening digital where you don't get your hands in the earth. It just feels like so much goes away when you don't have a tangible result. Absolutely. I think that the three things I identified, which I sort of mentioned, the tangible aspect of something, it doesn't have to be a record. It can be anything. So say any experience, it's tangible component, that kind of focus on the ceremony of the occasion and that that sense of presence that comes with that. And then the story that can be told. I think by losing those three things, particularly in music, but almost in everything that we do with the increasingly digital age that we're living through, we really lost the ability to have things in print so that they become, every one of those experiences becomes a part of who we are and what we carry with us. Something that really moves us, changes us, makes us think, makes us aware. And so now, you know, technology has ushered in this era of having all this access without any value, having all this noise without any curation. And it's really, in many ways, disconnected us from two core things that keep us vital as human beings, that are essential to our humanity, art and nature. You know, those really are the two things, as identified by neurologist Oliver Sacks, that actually are fundamental to our humanity. So when you look at what technology has done to art and how much it's devalued it, it's also done that to our relationship with the natural world. You know, so we can get everything we need at whatever point that we need, but we don't know the true cost or the value. That's not being reflected in the process of technology sort of fast tracking everything that it means to be human today. I feel like we, we have to reclaim a lot as much as it's about oh, where can we innovate and what can we innovate? And it's funny because my work is obviously pretty out there and you know each one of the projects has been a sort of first of its kind. But in many ways, I think of them as being very nostalgic and being almost about those things that we can actually reclaim. I think tech has really amplified our sense of superiority and our, you know, our ego and the dysfunctionality of the ego. But really... We get so much more pleasure out of the little things, whether it's, as you said, planting, reading a book or making a postcard. It's like we can't fast track those out of our lives because I think as a result, we become on autopilot all the time and dull on the inside. Well, I think that while everybody is trying to move towards that digital thing to get rid of the cost of the printing and the cost of the shipping and all that. The simplest way I can say the loss is that there's not an app for a hug. There's certain things you cannot replace and many of the things that you're working within, the idea of having music imprint on us, on our brains, the experience, is what you get when you smell a certain smell, when you smell crayons or cookies baking 
that comes and gets in, into our core and brings back experiences that we couldn't get in some other way. You know, we, we don't want to move to a place where we're having a, eating a pill for if, you know, if you want to have a fancy meal. I don't know if you saw this thing the other day. I was pretty fascinated by a QR code that was projected up in the sky by hundreds of drones that if they held their phone up to the sky, they could download a video game. Did you see that story? No. It, it was fascinating and clever and also dystopian and somewhat disturbing to me because it meant that wherever people were, if they just held it up, they were, it, it was essentially advertising, right? It's sort of a futuristic billboard. But why? Consumerism, I assume, right? That, that was just sort of somebody took their innovative notion of how do I distribute this quickly and get buyers. That felt like the why of it. But I think that why, I mean, that's something that is, you touched upon at the beginning, you know, before we started. I think that is the fundamental question that one always has to answer. It's funny because actually I talk about why and then I talk about why not. There are these two kind of paradoxes in some ways, but I don't think they are. I think there's an aspect of why not, which is, you know, creativity for creativity's sake and experimentation to kind of, you know, push things forward, try something different. But then you always ultimately have to know why. It's sort of the intention behind everything you do that governs the energy behind everything you do. And it's almost like it it predates even you your awareness, you know, particularly. And so I feel like when that why is really strong, you know, even if it's as simple as to remind people of the value of art for our humanity, if that's really what you're hoping to do with everything that you're putting out there, whether it's a small thing or a big thing, whatever, that's really the energy behind it, then it has a different quality to it. It has a different charge. And I think people really feel that. So I think right now there's a lot of things being done sort of neither for why not nor for why. It's just, you know, hey, aren't we clever? I mean, that you know, that you, you touched upon it when it's like the, that human cleverness but it's not really intelligence, you know, and I, I feel like you look at the natural world and you see the, some of the greatest intelligence of all that we're totally blind to, you know, we're completely indifferent to, and yet you're like, oh, well, actually we could learn so many things from, from just the ecosystems that are on our doorstep, but, you know, we've become so infatuated with our cleverness and what we can do when there's actually no reason to be doing it. You know, I think cryptocurrency and NFTs are a great example of that. It's all about making a buck and sort of taking the worst of the traditional art world and the worst of the digital world. And I feel like it, you've got to always be taking the best and the best. How can we take the best of the old world and, and that sort of pre-digital age and take the best of, of what technology can offer us? And that's where you get really intelligent solutions or, you know, innovations, I feel. I think that's what's really cool about the work you do is that there is a, a retro futurist vibe going on there. Really uh, at the core of love and loss and things that as a storyteller, that a person can live through through your storytelling. And yet you're finding these really unique ways to distribute it and to have a legacy of how it lives. I was fascinated to look through the exhibits that you had in the museum and how they reflected 
you know, both both the future and the past, there was a display of a Viewmaster there that sort of gave us the sense of the slideshow feeling that I was talking about. Which which album was that representing? For the first record, that was eight, which was back in two thousand and twelve. And the idea with that was, yeah, really to sort of take the phone and turn it into something magical, you know, like a eighties Viewmaster using this little palm top theater device. So you had a theater in the palm of your hand. And yeah, that was coming up to 10 years ago. It was the first album I'd done a sort of different presentation for, but it wasn't the first, I guess, innovation, because I'd prior to that done something for an EP. But it was, yeah, it was the beginning in some ways of that journey. And, And then I presented all of the album innovations in a, a solo show at the Victorian Albert Museum, working with the Bowie Is curatorial team. And that was just amazing because getting to show all these different outputs, you know, from the theatre for, for the palm of your hand or an album jacket, literally a record jacket that you could wear, woven with my music, recorded in the room where McCartney wrote Eleanor Rigby, Hendrix wrote The Wind Cries Mary, cut by the tailor who dressed Bowie and Hendrix and as this sort of reimagining of the album jacket or you know this space chamber where you could watch the record come to life um, with live animations sort of streaming out of the vinyl via an old coin-operated viewport you know all these different experiments that I've been doing as a way of sort of bringing back storytelling tangibility and ceremony to the digital music experience but you know they all seemed so different but they were all again really connected by this central intention and thought that goes around my head all the time like a a record player that's just stuck on loop that exhibition was just amazing and um, a real honor well many of those things folks can check out on your website but also there's a gorgeous documentary style storytelling called orange juice for your ears which is from space beams to anti-streams. It's a real dose of vitamin C for the soul if anybody wants to look it up. It's called Orange Juice for Your Ears. And I guess the director, you worked with Ross Harris on that. It feels like they really gave real attention to your your passion and purpose uh, behind all your projects. Absolutely. I mean, it was commissioned by the Barbican, which is Europe's largest um, art center. And then it was directed by... Ross, who's a friend of mine, you know, wonderful photographer, videographer, director. And, you know, I think what I like about that, because, you know, there are one or two projects that aren't included, either because, you know, they came later or because it was just maybe too too much to take people on this mad journey. But I think what I really love about, you know, that documentary is it sort of captures the spirit of it. In some ways, it's it's more about the, you know, the thinking behind some of those projects and more of a grounded view in some ways, because I think for me, a lot of this stuff is so is so obvious. It's, you know, from the moment I had that initial realization about where music had gone and how it didn't make sense to me, I thought everyone will be doing this. You know, everyone will be creating these these strange new formats for albums. And then, you know, you realize, okay, maybe that isn't that that obvious. So I think it's, you know, there are things that make sense to every one of us that maybe 
are unique to us. And I think that some of my work can definitely get very cerebral and very kind of, I don't know, not scientific, but you know, it can be quite a, a mouthful. And so I liked how Ross brought some of that down to earth. Well, you refer to yourself as a weird visionary and the word weird pops up a few times with artists. So I guess I never think of it and maybe it's because my world is surrounded by various artists and musicians and storytellers and people who see the world in fantastic ways. But is weird a protective word for you? Because you seem to have open receptors to these ideas and clear visions. And what I guess I'm most fascinated with is the fact that other people are understanding it well enough where you're collaborating with scientists or the medicine world or some other way where you're able to see your vision come to life. You know, I don't think I've ever consciously called myself weird. That quote was actually from Wired, and uh, not Wired, sorry, Vice. Um, they called me a musical weirdo and visionary. Ah. Yeah, the, you know, that wasn't something I'd, I'd call myself, but when I saw that, I thought, actually, you know, this is probably the best way of, in some ways, you know, summing up what I do, just because I feel like we get so obsessed with labels, you know, you're one thing or you're the other, you're artistic or you're scientific, you know, from a very early age, we sort of put ourselves in these boxes. And I hate all boxes, I just find them very uninspiring. As I was sort of coming into the work I was doing and people were like well what are you are you a musician or are you a technologist or find it so sort of boring trying to figure out a good way of saying what I do in a few words you know which is always limiting so when I saw that quote I thought okay yeah I can I'll just run with this this is this is fine and I think being a weirdo is um absolutely no bad thing. I, all of my favorite people definitely, particularly at the time that they were alive, were not thought of as being usual. They were sort of oddballs. In some cases they were considered crazy, you know, like William Blake. There's an element of just, I don't know, doing your thing and it, it obviously doesn't always make sense to everyone. That's fine. What does music look like to you? Well, it's an impossible thing to in some ways visualize because it's so pervasive and invisible and I think that's one of the the things I really experienced during this dementia music dementia research project um, which I began a number of years ago sort of separate from the other stuff but actually also interconnected and that line you know orange juice for the ears um, which you mentioned the name of the documentary comes from a line by Oliver Sacks about the power of music, how deep it really goes. And so during that project, you know, I saw reactions to, to music, which were the most profound reactions I've ever experienced. People getting up and dancing who were catatonic, um, people singing along with songs, you know, they'd never heard who were nonverbal. And so in some ways, if you were going to ask me, what does music look like to me it looks like profound awakenings profoundly deep awakenings of the soul and spirit that can take someone who is catatonic to dancing around on their feet 
something you can't see and yet you absolutely can see. And then I think, you know, on a visual level, what does it look like? Well, it looks like the most incredibly colourful, multi-dimensional, interconnected story or, or tapestry of human experience. You know, it's like this wonderful, incredibly beautiful, I think Yeats, this woven tapestry of human experience that has every colour and every shade and every pattern imaginable. I like that. It's very textural. And your phrase, profound awakening, really struck me because I remember seeing a cousin that I had had a young son, five-ish, and he had all kinds of problems at birth and really was a non-emotional kid that didn't had no speaking and so forth. And when I was at their house and they were playing a Whitney Houston album, I think it was I will always love you and hit that super high note. His face turned to a smile. It's something we'd never seen. And it was literally the musical booster shot that he needed to feed. We could see him fully alive inside. And it was really an extraordinary thing that I know that your work with the dementia folks is must be have a, a very big impact on your your heart and your work. It did, and actually it just reaffirmed everything I already felt about the power of music and why, as an artist, one has to be very intentional. You know, when you see what music can do on all these different levels, and we still don't really understand it, that's what's fascinating. We know, you know, as much about our brains and music in the brain as we do about our ocean floors or the surface of the moon. So there's still so much we don't know, and yet music keeps on opening up doors that we thought were closed. So I just have the greatest appreciation for it and of it, and of anything that connects us, you know, anything that really brings us closer to ourselves and to one another and keeps us alive inside. You use that phrase, I use it a lot as well. Those are the, the vital components of life. So will you share a little bit about your creative process just in terms of a daily routine? Do you have a dedicated space or time or something that you're committing to uh, daily or weekly? You know, for a long time, I never did. And ideas and inspiration and whatever would come from anywhere at any point. And, you know, when people would say, oh, I make sure I have a couple of hours, you know, to play the guitar or just to be in that space where I might be inspired or, you know, I might write a song. I never had that. It just would happen. And, you know, I'd be the middle of the night or I'd be with a bunch of people. And then suddenly it's like, oh, you know, a, a song is coming or, oh, an idea. That has always been very fluid. And I've never had a sort of sense of trying to make anything happen. I just let it, I kind of let it come. But something I have been doing as a routine, which I used to do as a teenager, is when I wake, before going to the phone or the computer or plugging in, I spend you know some time in meditation and then I spend some time writing. And that usually ends up being two hours, a couple of hours. And I found that that has just been kind of a game changer because I think now we are so connected. It's like, it's almost impossible not to be connected in terms of the internet, you know, not in terms of necessarily our ourselves. And once you get online, you can't get offline, really. 
So just to delay that as long as possible. And I found that a lot of, you know, poems, ideas, lyrics, you know, a lot more has been coming through in that space in some ways because you're kind of making that, you know, a dedicated time and space. And also just anxiety. You know, I used to have a lot of anxiety before events and things like that and and sort of really over not overthinking but just you know analyzing stuff and earlier this week I, I actually was speaking and performing showing my work at the Nobel Prize Summit in the past something like that would have just I wouldn't have been able to really do anything for weeks you know I would have been so focused on on that and so doing this morning practice just really changed my kind of way of being and and I think with the digital era, we all now have such heightened levels of anxiety and nervousness that I don't think we would have it, you know, if we weren't living in this kind of social media age. So it's also just about really appreciating that we have to do more to sort of realize that a lot of that is just an echo chamber and not real and not important. I think the morning is a very, for me, it has turned into a game changer at the top of the year and certainly through a pandemic when I realized, okay, nobody's going to do this work if I don't do it. And the distractions that you mentioned, if you think about the old days, you used to go to your mailbox once a day and you would pick up the mail and you would look at it on the web back home and then you would set your bills on your desk and they would stay away from you. Like, you know, in, in the olden days. But now it's like you have it attached to you and the mailman's delivering every time you turn left or right, there's an expectation of a response. It is really tremendously distracting. But I also find that in the morning before I'm able to put my judgment hat on that I do a lot more better, more cerebral writing, more thoughtful, more heartfelt because I don't get in my own way uh, until I start to enter in all my daily responsibilities. And, and then if I'm writing comedy, I think, oh, I have to be funny versus just writing from truth and feelings. I mean, I think you're definitely onto something in, in self-care to meditate and to write before you let the world rob you of your time. Absolutely. And I think that the other way you sort of wake up and you're basically, your day is basically dictated by what's in your you know mailbox so i wish it were a literal mailbox but you know what's in your inbox and messages and all of that you sort of spend the day reacting to that instead of determining your own inner space and your inner your inner well-being i think that's really important and i think what you said about mail you know i love physical communications i think it's just there's nothing like it you know it disrupts the sort of instant feedback loop that we've got so used to and you know you don't know if you send someone a letter even if it's going to get there when it's going to get there you know what their what their response will be if they'll write back and there's something so wonderful about that because then also when it if you do get a letter back it comes as such a surprise and such a joy and we've really got very used to instant feedback and gratification and almost that becomes the reason you do something rather than the act in and of itself the writing of a letter to write a letter rather than oh what are they going to say you know how how much are they going to you know like that within a nanosecond of me sharing it i'm with you handwritten letters 
have it in time investment. There's so much thought that goes into it, and there's the delivery process. I know that you collaborated with Mark uh, Mothersbaugh for a postcard campaign to sort of help the the post office, and I was really enamored by that gesture and the idea that art could be mailed and stamps could be purchased, and it, it was so thoughtful. Is that still going on, or? Yeah, so actually that project, which began October 2020, you know, very much out of lockdown, and given what was happening to USPS and, you know, the importance of the postal vote and all of that, but then what we saw was just this outpouring of, of people's creativity and it was so amazing and so moving getting all of this kind of mail and you know reflecting all these different thoughts and feelings and a lot of them collective. So we're going to have an exhibition of all of those cards at the Robert Rauschenberg Gallery in Florida from May 17th until August 8th. So it'll be like a three-month exhibition of all the postcards that came in and are still coming in. You know, we're still getting them every day. So I think it really touched on on something that, you know, people also love physical communication and, you know, a way of sort of giving us all a outlet and a way of being connected at this time of of isolation and too much social media and you know digital world well i think people have a need to express themselves and when they do when they do it where they take a moment and they use that journey of communicating in that way that actually is transformative to the writer and or the painter or the musician and so you can't shortcut that you don't see a some great uh, publication of transcripts from the greatest text exchanges of all times you know that that's not happening no thank god let's hope that doesn't happen <laughs> i want to just step back to tangibility for a second because one of the things that struck me about that word is that it kind of prompts meaning finishing the work seeing it through to completion so that it's out of your hands and into someone else's hands in addition to having something that exists it feels like it's sort of prompts completing things am i right in that assessment you know i'd never thought about it particularly but i think you're right because yeah there's a commitment to sort of realizing it as a tangible form there isn't a shortcut you know i think that god we love our shortcuts and we love our fast tracking but nothing good can be done easily on some level i really believe that i think you know the the best stuff takes time and it takes limiting factors. I think we now have no limiting factors and that is to our detriment. You know, really having to figure out what you want to say or how you want to say it and you've only got a tiny card to, you know, sort of communicate that through or you've only got one shot in a studio to get that kind of recorded and edited. You know, all those things that with technology we've kind of lost we can have infinite potential doesn't mean it's infinite creativity if anything it's the other way around i think creativity massively needs limitations so yeah and, and obviously with tangibility it's like there are limitations tangibility and limitations almost go hand in hand so maybe that's why it's such a magical format 
And it, it feels like it's a birthing process and you're not going to stop in the middle of it. You needed to come to life and come out to the world and be exposed to its audience and then watch it grow from there. Yeah, and because I think it almost has a life of its own. You know, you think of of the male and you think how many hands that that male is touched by, you know, or as Mark said, one of his favorite things about the cards was when he'd see that the postal service would kind of intervene, you know, they'd put something fragile in an envelope and they'd add a little message and that becomes part of the story and the journey. So, you know, with tangible things, they really, you know, they really have this greater story that they can tell. It really almost transports us to a time and place and it becomes a portal in some ways. That's why I've always been fascinated by the dead letter office, uh, which I don't even know if they have those anymore. But there used to be a department which was, you know, part detective, part lost and found. And if something was wrong with a piece of mail or something, they would go to all ends to try to figure out how to get it there, even if it had no name on it or no zip code. I guess I look at it as a place where stories got lost or stopped midway. And there used to be a commitment to get story to its final person. Because in the communication model, and this is something that really fascinates me about your work, is that you know your message, you write a song or a story, you know that you're the sender and you know the receiver is out there in the world and you choose your method of distributing this, whether it's in the form of a, a jacket or a pack of playing cards. And then the final part of that communication model is the response. How does it come back? And it feels like you're, there's a tremendous response to your work in terms of people discovering your unique voice. But I think you're using the full communication model in your process, which is a lot of people stop somewhere along the way. The bigger message, I feel, you know, beyond each album, beyond each sort of innovation or presentation is really about reminding people of the magic of music, but art really, you know, of, of storytelling and having them see that they can have that experience today. They can still have that feeling of, of wonder and discovery and excitement and something going in you know and creating a sort of different pathway in the brain that I feel like I had every time I opened up a record as a kid you know that's the thing I get really excited about because I think in some ways we've we've sort of forgotten about that aspect um, and everything's just become background and you know 24-hour shuffle so if I can create something that creates a sense of time and space that is sort of outside of the time and space we're often operating in. Oh, that that's what it's all about for me. That just makes me so happy. Yeah. It also seems like given that one of your sort of mission statements is ceremony, it feels like place also comes into context there with time and space. Like when this moment of ceremony happens, how and where does that happen? I think that this, the space or the place you know, we talk about tangibility and actually tangibility can just be a physical space. If you're creating a world that, you know, has aspects of AR or whatever to augment an experience, I still think it is fundamentally important that it is grounded in a real space and place that gives it its sort of majesty and its ceremony. So, yeah, I think physical space and place is 
is very important and is just a another kind of tangible gateway or anchor really one of the things that's so amazing to me is each person on each project that you're doing it feels like you're entering into as you said scientific worlds medical worlds and those people also have a creative and artistic need but they don't always have the partner or the collaborator that can communicate it the way you do musically or lyrically or poetically you know that also just comes back to what we were talking about with labeling and how you know we put ourselves in these boxes okay so i'm a musician so i can only do this or i'm a astrophysicist so i can only do this and i'm kind of indifferent to all of those boxes and if a story or a narrative a vision kind of inspires me and i see these different layers and it touching upon health and science and you know where almost wherever that thread is going and you follow that and then you share that story with the people you know that are related or on that path it's amazing how if you're inspired by something other people get inspired by it and they want to be a part of it and it opens up so many wonderful things where then something artistic can also be something that is you know scientific or it's communicating multiple things simultaneously something that is presented as you know as as one thing then actually contains all these other hidden benefits or or discoveries or information again that gets me really kind of excited because i feel like anywhere where you can build bridges between the fields or between these things that we've siloed that's what it's all about i just i see a lot of my work as just building bridges between you know digital and physical or science art design technology music just making these things accessible to more people and presenting information say data in a way that is humanized you know via the power of art and then you're actually getting the best of both worlds yeah and i know that you had a big inspiration in someone like hedy lamar who sort of had labels on her that were actress film producer but she was a inventor and an innovative thinker that co-invented the frequency hopping spread spectrum um, which i think was intended for torpedo guidance or something so tell me a little bit about how she inspires your work with me and my work it's funny i have very few people that almost i cite as direct influences and they have kind of stayed the same forever and with hedy she wasn't initially one of those because I didn't actually know about her or her work until watching, you know, Bombshell. But it was like this sort of bomb then went off in terms of my awareness and appreciation of this person who was looked at as one thing, you know, considered as just being one thing and was so much more and was so incredibly intelligent and you know, was just this badass who was kind of operating multiple jobs, you know, simultaneously and frequency hopping being one of her many breakthrough discoveries. So yeah, I really got inspired by that idea because it felt like a really interesting way of actually creating a sort of next record installation using frequency hopping code and paying tribute to Hedy Lamarr, you know, who is still one of those pioneers who the world has to catch up with like many others and creating this sort of secret communication system 
where people would feel like they're walking around in an old radio and discovering the secret channels and messages of this record while simultaneously leaving their own that would act as this sort of whisper layer that would die out as the new recordings came in. So she really inspired the, the mode of presentation for what would be the next record installation. That's cool. And, and most people don't know that the inventions that she worked on impact our Wi-Fi and our Bluetooth technology, traffic stoplights, things like that. And she, as you said, the light hasn't been fully shown on what she has contributed to the world. No. And obviously it's hard being someone ahead of your time anyway, but also if you're female, well, that's, that's another sucker punch. So she was beautiful and she only really got seen for her looks and the movies she was in, but she was this absolutely ingenious inventor. And as you said, she created something that went on to influence everything in our digital age and space today. Yeah, and I will lay blame to male-dominated movie systems and all of those things that it's a sad situation in our world that I hope we can play catch up on many levels, on gender, on race, on all of those things where we start to amplify the voices and recognize the people who are really, really laid the pipe as opposed to crediting the corporation or the money man. I think we're growing. I think we're learning on the go here. But boy, the difference, seeing a person like you, seeing a poet, Amanda Gorman, seeing uh, Greta Thunberg, like I feel like there's a lot of hope that we're actually hearing the voices of young people who are going to be around a long time. And I hope that's good company for you. But it really moves me, especially coming off of a few years of a lot of political rhetoric and divisiveness to see sort of rays of hope breaking through the cracks. Oh, yeah, I feel it as well. And no, that's that's wonderful company, the best company. I think also it's just human ego, which, you know, typically is male. And that's a very simplistic way of summing up what's been going on for up until hopefully we're at a turning point. You know, it's just the ego and greed continually taking from resources that are finite and having sort of no sense of the interconnection of this planet and of our species and everything around us. So anything that can start remedying that, I think, is so needed. Well, I'm so grateful for your investing the time with us today. And I know that doing your work improves your quality of life, but it improves the quality of life for others. I don't know. I read a sign that said, do something today that your future self will thank you for. And I'm so grateful to have you with us sharing your voice with other artists and songwriters and creators, because I think you're a true inspiration. Oh, Pat, thank you so much. No, it's been just wonderful chatting with you and so inspiring. I'm really delighted to be a part of your ongoing conversations. And I feel also, yeah, tremendously hopeful in whatever ways we can, you know, do some good. That's what it's all about. It's just leaving the world a little better for us being here. And we can all do, do that in so many different ways. And, you know, I, I, I just feel very lucky and grateful to be able to do it in the ways that I can. You're extraordinary. So if we can be of service in any way, you call on us, all right? Thank you, Pat. Thank you so much. BD, you're the best. I'm going to play us off with BD's tune, From Green to Red, an environmental protest song built using 800,000 years of our planet's data. You can hear more by checking out her page on our website. 
that the people like cars are still running when inside it's safe to deny that it's coming the tv's turned up so the winds are just humming to the sound of the heat rising we don't want to hear that the problem is us so we live like we want in our own universe cause man thinks he's god in a devilish way we're too proud to see what we won't even say we don't want to know don't want to know don't want to know don't want to know thanks for listening Take a moment to subscribe and you will always have an invitation to join us for more creative conversations that offer a spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative under Whizbang producer Amanda Rosenberg with editing by soundsmith Casey Franco. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp. Please feel free to reach out with your input or to share a review through social media on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityandcaptivity.fun. That's right, it's dot .fun, because dot .com is not fun. Cheers. No, we don't want to know, don't want to know, don't want to know, don't want to know. Like it's too late